Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked Podcast. I've got another very special guest today, uh, John Tierney, who's the uh, a former New York Times writer. He's the uh, a concurrent contributing editor to City Journal, and he was a co-author of uh, of the book The Power of Bad: How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. Uh, so, John, thank you so much for doing this. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ian, and thank you for the great work you have done throughout the pandemic. I just loved your charts. I loved your book. I, you know, I wrote a piece about it for City Journal, and we published your graphs. And you've just been so wonderful to see what you've been doing. Really, it, it, it's what our public health establishment should have been doing, but um, didn't. So I'm glad you uh, you took up the cause. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much for the kind words. Really appreciate it. And uh, I, I agree. This, this should have fallen to other people. But, you know, <laughs> here, here we are and uh, we're doing our best. <laughs> so um, I wanted to start with your kind of initial thoughts on COVID. So, you know, when you heard, first heard about it, what did you think the virus would turn out to be like here? And what did you think of the kind of initial policy response? Did you think it was maybe an overreaction, underreaction? You know, what were your kind of general ideas? Well, my gut feeling, and we can talk, you can talk more about this later, is that the biggest problem, and, and in my book I write about this, is called the crisis crisis. And my three basic rules for any crisis that, uh, that comes up are that there are three assumptions when you're contemplating the news, is that the world will always seem to be in crisis, the crisis is never as bad as it seems, and the solution could easily make things worse. Now, so that's how I thought of COVID at first. I thought, well, you know, this is, and you know, and I've been hearing these predictions about, you know, a, a devastating global pandemic for a long time. So I was skeptical, but you know, one keeps an open mind. And certainly early on, I was, uh, you know, you know, trying to look at the data and see what was happening. I mean, I could see from the start that, as usual, you know, it was being hyped by you know, by people with an interest in hyping it, the media, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, public health officials who, you know, who gain a lot of prestige and funding and um, and attention when they do it. But nevertheless, it was obvious that this was a real problem. So um, it was very hard to figure out at first what it was, but I think it became pretty clear early on, um, you know, in the, but in the spring of 2020, that um, this mainly affected older people and people with, with, you know, serious risk factors. So, and yet, you know, and there were people early on, like Scott Atlas was publishing, you know, uh, uh, from the Hoover Institution, who later joined Trump's um, a task force at the White House. But he and other economists were warning, uh, John Ioannidis from Stanford was also warning that, you know, the reaction these lockdowns could kill more people than the virus. And and they were trying to get some sense of perspective. Who's really at risk? How do we protect them? How do we let the rest of society uh, continue? So that that was my concern very, you know, very early on. Right. And it's, it's interesting because I think they, you know, you hit the nail on the head. It's like we have to try to protect a certain group of people, which then became some kind of conspiracy theory just a few months in it was it was uh, unheard of to say that and instead of trying to protect certain people we tried to protect everybody and and failed to protect anybody uh you know did did you think early on that this would become something longer term than just a few weeks i mean I, initially they were saying oh it's going to be uh, 15 days or so to spread and then we'll, we'll open society back up did you kind of believe that or did you think it was going to be a longer term issue I mean, I can't claim I had special prescience. It's very, you know, it's really hard to know about these things. I, I mean, I think people, you know, early on, they were saying, look, the flu is a virus that, you know, circulates every year. We have surges and, you know, this is a virus and we're not going to uh, eradicate it. So it's not going to be, um, and, you know, and the, as time goes on, more, you know, more and more people will be exposed. It never goes away. But, you know, uh, people do develop some immunity once they've been exposed to it. So... I mean, I didn't, you know, and, and one thing early on, it was, you know, I mean, people who made predictions about, you know, when this is going to stop, you know, when, you know, when it's going to surge, you know, the, there were a lot of mistakes made then. Uh, you know, certainly the computer modelers made these absurd uh, assumptions, and those assumptions and models were used to shut down society. So I didn't um, know what would happen, but I thought, you know, the, and, you know, and, and I was relying on, and, and early on, I was fortunate that there were some, you know, scientists and, and medical researchers and public health people, not many, but some, you know, 
who were saying, look, this, this, we should be following the fundamental principles of public health here. You try to identify who's at risk, you know, protect them, and uh, while doing the least damage to everyone else. And yet that just got completely thrown out. It was, it was really, uh, um, you know, and, and my assumption all along, you know, from what I'd written, you know, about the crisis crisis and this was that, you know, of course the, the, the problem is, is inevitably going to be hype because journalists always go with the, the worst case uh, scenarios, the worst case projections. They seek out people who make those projections. And, you know, and the people that, that we relied on early on, this team at Imperial College in, um, in England with, uh, with Neil Ferguson, they had a terrible track record. You know, they got quoted all the time, you know, but they had made these massive over predictions in, 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 in uh, uh, previous pandemics, or, or, or what they expected to be pandemics of, of bird flu and swine flu. They, they were just off by orders of magnitude. And they had, you know, and their recommendations and their, and their crisis mongering had led to enormous economic, you know, losses that were unnecessary. So I was very skeptical of the doomsday predictions. And I was especially, you know, skeptical about these these unprecedented strategies, you know, that, you know, suddenly, I mean, it was just a bizarre thing early on when in this paper that made, you know, uh, the, they got so much attention, you know, front page of the New York Times everywhere. When, when Ferguson's team predicted there'd be 2 million deaths in America by the end of the summer and that there would soon be 30 COVID patients for every hospital bed in America. Um, now that was the prediction that really scared everyone, and 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 then also in this paper they asserted without any you know evidence that the only viable strategy was to lock down society. Now you know this this strategy had been rejected specifically by by people who you know sober-minded researchers who spent a great deal of time before the long before the pandemic figuring out what is the best strategy for a pandemic and they had you know they had decided the cdc that they looked at various scenarios and they said even if there was a pandemic as devastating as the 1918 spanish flu one that really kills young people that, that it was just you know had massive deaths even in a in a pandemic that bad we should not close down businesses or schools um, they just realized these things would be futile and, and they would be so disruptive and so destructive in other ways. So, yet that's suddenly, you know, the CDC's plan, as you point out in your book, Unmasked, uh, the WHO's plan uh, beforehand, uh, uh, the, uh, the United Kingdom's plan for a pandemic, these did not recommend masking. Um, and they certainly didn't recommend lockdowns. Um, so this was a this untested strategy that suddenly became the science um, and there wasn't science to back it. And, and, and even worse, it suddenly became heresy for anyone to question it. So, you know, the early researchers, Johnny Anitas of Stanford, one of the world's most cited authorities on the, um, on the quality of medical research, just an eminent researcher. And he just wrote an essay saying, look, you know, we're making these huge decisions without no, even knowing how serious this threat is, you know, how deadly the virus is. And he just got pilloried by other academics and, and by the press, you know, by the media. And then when he and some other scientists, uh, Ajay Bhattacharya and, and colleagues at Stanford, you know, I actually tried to find out how serious the threat was, and they came up with an estimate that um, at that time in, in the general community, it seemed to be about maybe twice as deadly as the flu. They, um, you know, they were just pilloried. And, you know, the, the um, social media platforms started censoring anyone who disagreed, anyone who questioned lockdowns, anyone who questioned masks. So it was just a bizarre thing to see. I mean, as I say, I've been, you know, a lot of my journalistic career, I have been debunking crises. You know, the, the population crisis in the 60s, the energy crisis in the 70s, the, you know, the cancer epidemic, the, you know, in the 80s that was about to do it. And, you know, and I just see there is this crisis industry that is always ready to hype a crisis and exploit it. But I was still 
shocked uh, at COVID. And I, I just was astonished at how uniformly the media um, and and the Democratic Party certainly um, just signed on to this um, crisis. How they and and how willingly everyone just took away the fundamental liberties of people without any scientific basis, and how little you know skepticism there was in the media. It was, I mean, I have to say, I've, you know, I've been documenting this all my life. I am very skeptical of, uh, of the media, the way it reports on science, the way it reports on public health. Um, I, you know, I, I did a piece in City Journal um, a year or two ago called The Corruption of Public Health, pointing out how the whole field has gotten so politicized that it's really now a menace to public health. Um, you know, I've written about, you know, how, you know, one of the, uh, scandals in, in public health is that in the United States is the way it's opposed vaping. This is, you know, this is one of the greatest public health advances that, that, that has led to people quitting smoking, which is the largest preventable cause of death. And yet we have a public health establishment here fighting it. It's just, it's mind boggling. So I knew that the public health establishment could not be trusted. I knew it, it would have been terribly politicized that, that it basically, you know, that, that instead of actually doing traditional good public health benefit, you know, measures like, you know, cleaner water, um, um, eradicating, um, uh, you know, threats or not eradicating, you know, but trying to control threats like malaria things that, you know, it was a glorious profession in its heyday and it's just been taken over by the left. It's just, and now, you know, the National Association for Public Health, you know, just endorses all these progressive things, minimum wage, you know, stuff like this has nothing to do with public health. It's just basically using public health as an excuse to promote a progressive agenda. So I knew how politicized it had become, but I just was still astonished to see what they did. Hmm. That's, that's very interesting. And um, I, you know, I wanted to ask you and it kind of just in giving in your answer, it made me really think about this. Why do you think it is that that Neil Ferguson's group after kind of they've made all these predictions, as you said, but they weren't really taken that seriously. So, you know, what was it about this specific crisis that everybody kind of bought into what they were saying after ignoring them for, for such a long time? You know, what, what was the difference? Was it just kind of the apex of the crisis movement as you've kind of documented? <laughs> well, actually, um, I was unclear that no, he was taken seriously before. I mean, you know, oh. they, uh, I mean, his his concerns, you know, in the past had led to just killing, you know, millions of. Uh, I think it was, was it. I'd have to look it up, but 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 the swine flu or, or oh right, the, the or one of those animals, yeah, yeah, culling animals. So they're always taken seriously by the media. You know, they love to promote scares, and they have, they've been very destructive before. But they were never, as you say, they've never been given this much power. And I just think we had this confluence of. You know, it was partly driven in the U.S. by, you know, Democrats saw this as a great, you know, that the economy was doing well, that, you know, Trump was um, um, looked as if he'd be reelected. So this was a great pretext to do it. But um, and that was part of the reason that suddenly solidified everything, that we've got this polarized political environment. OK, here's something we can blame on Trump. Let's make it sound as awful as possible. And I think, frankly, that. Um, you know, Democrats thought, and if we ruin the economy in the process, well, that's not necessarily a bug. That's a feature because it'll 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 hurt Trump's um, uh, re-election chances. But it, that doesn't really explain why the rest of the world, you know, went along with it. Now, I mean, to some extent, the American public health establishment media have a big impact, and uh, and you know, Scott Atlas says that the lockdowns promoted by Fauci and Deborah Burks to some extent were copied in the rest of the world, but, you know, but I mean, uh, the European countries have their own, you know, uh, public health establishments and most of them or, or a lot of them went along with it. Not Sweden, thank God, is your choice of show, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, uh, or Finland and Norway, but you know, the rest of them pretty much went along and there has just been this enormous group think in the public health establishment and in the science establishment. I mean, another piece I did for city journal was called the real war on science. And for all the talk that, you hear about, you know, there was a book called The Republican War on Science. And um, if you actually read that book, you really can't find any serious threats from Republicans to science. What you can find are the Republicans don't always um, oppose a lot of the policies that are 
that are um, uh, promoted by progressives. Um, but but you know, Republicans don't really have much impact on science. You know, they don't use it as much as, as, as certainly uh, the way the progressives do. You know, the science basically is a tool to advance progressive agenda. I mean, it's it's a, it's a ridiculous concept to say there's one thing like the science and that it tells you what to do. You know, science gives you a description of the world, and it's it's not it's never one dogma. It's always being debated, always being revised, and it's a description of the world, not a prescription for what you should do. You know, making, you know, deciding whether to lock down, whether to mandate masks, whether to close schools. These are not scientific questions. These are questions that involve enormous, you know, trade-offs that involve economics, morality. Um, many things besides science, um, you know, your values, what's more important to you. Um, so the, you know, scientists don't, you know, somebody, an epidemiologist doesn't know what the best policy is for, um, the overall benefit of society. I mean, you know, the shocking thing, um, I did a piece in city journal about Scott Atlas's book and the really shocking thing in that book. Um, is that when he gets to Washington and he joins the coronavirus task force at the White House, he discovers that nobody will even discuss the side effects of these policies. Nobody bothered to do a cost-benefit analysis. You know, they didn't even pretend to discuss it. Um, and this was true around the world. You know, nobody did cost-benefit analysis. That's sort of a standard, you know, what a, a standard public health approach should be. You should look at, okay, what are the benefits of these policies and, and, and what are the costs? I mean, that's what we look at when we look at any new drug or medical treatment. Uh, uh, um, you look at the benefits it provides and you look at the, you know, at the bad side effects. And yet this was just not done at all. There was no consideration. They didn't even pretend to do it. Um, so that was just a shock to me. It was a shock to Atlas, and, and, and it amazed me that, you know, he tried to, to you know, and, and also for all the talk about the science, you know, he found that when he actually brought in scientific papers um, and discussed them with, with, with Anthony Fauci or Deborah Burks, that neither one of them had any interest that wouldn't talk about it. You know, Burks justified her initial mass mandates. Um, he asked her, what was the evidence for mandating, you know, for mandating masks or encouraging you know, basically every state to have mass mandates. And she cited this ridiculous study about involving two hairstylists yeah. <laughs> um, at a salon. And then, you know, and, 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 and Atlas knew that it was a, you know, it was a meaningless, it was kind of an anecdotal study, you know, it was so flawed in so many ways. But even worse than that, when as he started talking to her about that study, he realized she hadn't even read it. You mm. know, she didn't know what was in it. I mean, this is a person who we're trusting to set policy for the whole country, who's just ordering everyone to wear masks based on a, on a terrible study she hasn't even bothered to read. Um, so it's it's just incredible. But it, uh, you know, Friedrich Hayek in his in his classic book, The Road to Serfdom. Um, he had a chapter about how central planners, that nobody, no expert, no central planner has the knowledge to design society, to run the economy, to make all these decisions for different people with different values. And he has a great chapter in a called, you know, and, and, and people like to think, oh, we get a wise expert like Anthony Fauci and they'll tell us what to do. And 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 he said, A, that, you know, in the first place, they don't have the knowledge to know what's best to do. And you know, Anthony Fauci didn't had no way to gauge. He wasn't gauging the value of closing schools, you know, you, you know, the the harm suffered by children versus the benefits. He wasn't even trying to do that. He had no way to know it. But aside from that, the big assumption we make is that, well, these public officials are going to act in the, and we're going to get well-meaning virtuous public officials doing their best to do what's best for everyone. But in fact, he said, when you entrust a central planner, um, that job, it, it's a hopeless job because he doesn't have enough knowledge to know what's best for everyone. So he basically is just going to set arbitrary goals. You know, he has to do that. He has to make it, the way that Fauci and Burks just, you know, their only metric was how many COVID cases and deaths we had. That's the only thing that mattered. So they, so you set an arbitrary goal, and then because it display, because a lot of people don't share that goal, uh, you know, someone who wanted to keep his uh, who wanted to keep his job or his restaurant open, 
you therefore then have to start um, enforcing it and, and you have to start suppressing dissent. And so he said it basically is, you know, the, giving that kind of power, you end up selecting for somebody who, who are the most ruthless and unscrupulous people because they're very good at wielding power. And he had a chapter in The Road to Serfdom called um, Why the Worst Come Out on Top. And that's what we saw. You know, we saw these, this troika of bureaucrats, Fauci and Deborah Burks and Robert Redfield from the CDC, who all knew each other. They'd all worked together. You know, during the AIDS epidemic, and they've been terribly irresponsible, you know, or, or terribly wrong then. You know, Redfield and Fauci had both promoted this heterosexual AIDS scare that terrified the country for more than a decade, um, that, that the virus was suddenly going to start spreading rampantly among heterosexuals. They had pursued an AIDS vaccine that hadn't worked. And yet, they were, and, and yet none of this hurt their careers, these mistakes. You know, the media loved them because um, Fauci, especially because they gave those worst case scenarios, the scare stories that the media loves to have in order to get more, you know, more clicks, more readers. Um, and so, and, and they just rose in the federal bureaucracy despite their disastrous performance during AIDS. And they were veterans of how to get power and, um, and how to keep it. And they made this, as the New York Times revealed, they made this secret pact among themselves that if any one of them was fired, then the other two would quit. You know, they knew how to get power. They didn't know how to deal with the pandemic, but they mm -hmm. didn't know how to keep their power. So they, and, and, you know, and, and basically, you know, because it was so politicized, Trump, you know, you know, Trump, himself had some decent instincts about let's keep the economy open, let's keep schools open. But his political advisors were terrified of firing Fauci and Burks, which they should have. That would have been the best thing to do early in the pandemic. But they figured if he fired Fauci, the uproar would just cost him the election. So Trump didn't have the um, courage to, you know, to fire Fauci. And, and, uh, and, and we all suffered as a result. Hmm. Uh, so obviously you've been very critical of, of masking lockdowns, all these policies. And, and I, so I was curious, you know, you come from the New York times. Have you heard from anybody there about this, you know, kind of support behind the scenes or criticism? Cause obviously the New York times has been pretty supportive of, of nearly all of these kind of mandates and, and lockdown policies. Um, no, I haven't really been, 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 I mean, I left the times a few years ago. I was on, you know, I, I worked, I wrote, a column about New York. I wrote um, an op-ed column, and then and then I wrote for a while the a science column, and um, so. But I haven't really been in touch with them, and and uh, you know some of, some veterans of the New York Times, you know, like Nicholas Wade, who was a colleague of mine, a friend of mine. He wrote you know the seminal article after leaving the Times, you, you know that that uh, about uh, the lab leak had been. Uh, the lab leak theory had been dismissed as impossible, been censored on social media for a year. And then he wrote a piece that he just published on his own that said, wait a minute, you know, the, uh, the longer this goes on, the, you know, the, the, um, there's, uh, uh, there was no reason to reject the lab leak in the first place theory, because in fact, you know, it was quite plausible that it was there and the reasons for rejecting it made no sense. And the longer it went on without finding any natural source for, you know, for this virus, then, yeah, uh, the more plausible that seemed. And that really changed the conversation, the national conversation about that. So, but the mainstream media in general just had remarkably little skepticism. Um, you know, and they just went with the panic narrative and, and, and basically with the narrative, you know, that with Fauci's narrative, that, that was their job. I mean, he's been, he's very clever. He's been very good for decades at cultivating the press. He returns their calls. He, he, he provides the scary quotes they want. And so they have protected him for decades. Hmm. It's, it's pretty scary to, to hear that and uh, unfortunate. Um, so obviously we, we have to talk about your, one of your most recent articles, which was the, the failed policy of mask mandates for, for City Journal. Uh, I was picked up by the New York Post, Real Clear Politics, among others. So, you know, what made you want to write that that article? What was the kind of impetus that got you thinking that I want to write kind of like a definitive, this is a failed policy and, and here's why? 
Well, it was your work that did it. I mean, I had seen, I had seen your chart with, you know, I mean, I'd been following your charts during the pandemic and I, and Scott Atlas used one of your charts in his book that I thought was the most compelling, you know, evidence there was showing that there was very little difference in, in in the course of COVID in states with or without mask mandates and why that had, you know, I mean, Atlas rightly pointed out to that, but I just thought this is, you know, why isn't, why aren't people talking? I mean, this is, you know, there were these, you know, various bogus studies that you expose in your book on masks, you know, you know, that, that would just cherry pick data and arbitrarily pick certain dates to try and show that masks slowed the spread. But here we actually had this huge nationwide natural experiment. We had places that had mass mandates and places that didn't. And, you know, the same way we had in Sweden, we had a natural experiment. Here's a country that, that didn't lock down versus others. You know, that's instead of these, you, you know, the, the rationale for mass mandates and lockdowns tended to be these sort of computer models that somebody would say, if we hadn't done it, this would have happened. And they were often based on basically absurd assumptions that, well, the viruses would have kept going, growing, you know, infections would have just kept growing exponentially unless we locked down. And of course, that's not how, you know, these surges happen. They go up and they go down. So, um, so I'd seen that, that chart and I just thought, boy, that is amazing just to see that. I mean, how do you refute that? So th that's when I got in touch with you and said, could you extend that chart up to the, you know, up through this, uh, this latest winter surge? And, uh, we did it, and it was great that you did it, and, uh, and 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 that's why I wanted to write the piece. And then I and then I and I wanted to write about your book too, which really puts together the, um, you know, the evidence of how, um, you know, masks were not, you know, the research before the pandemic didn't support masks. The, the and you know the the best research during the pandemic showed that mask mandates weren't working, and and then. And yet, and also, as you say, you know, all that, and it was, I just, it was great the way you would just compile these, these quotes from journalists saying, you know, New Mexico or, you know, or somebody in right. Rhode Island has controlled the virus thanks to math. India controlled it. They did it. And then as soon as they did the prediction, bam, cases would go right up. The math suddenly lost their magical power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one one other aspect of masking that you bring up in the article, I I don't really touch on. It, a lot of people don't. It's kind of just it's like a dependency problem that is as ha, uh, kind of reared its head in Japan. And and you know, do you think that that's going to come here as well now? Now that we've kind of opened this Pandora's box of masking to protect yourself from respiratory viruses. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's a certain you know level of hypochondria in in society, and you basically, you know, as Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford has said, you know, once you um, sow all this hysteria and fear, you can't unring that bell. People just become obsessed with it, and you know, wearing masks now, people just started feeling, you know, they started feeling it was protecting them, you know, even though it wasn't, and then also you get the secondary effect, this mask dependency they've observed in Japan, where people are just so used to having a mask on, they feel naked without it. Um, and I heard that in the, in the U.S. I mean, it was just, you know, I, I mean, I heard stories from parents who whose kids insisted on wearing a mask to bed at night. Um, and kids who, you know, when their school finally dropped the mask mandate, they said, oh, my God, everyone's going to see my face, my mouth. Um, and, and then you saw, you know, those high school kids in uh, Seattle, I think it was, that, um, you know, when the school dropped the mask mandate, they had a protest to bring back the mask. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these kids are at no risk from the virus. And they're, you know, it's hurting them in so many. It's, it's, you know, it's not. I mean, these filthy masks that nobody uses correctly. Um, they don't, you know, wash their hand. They don't wash the mask. They don't replace them regularly. And you're just trapping all this bacteria. You're, um, and there's, you know, there's a, there's a, a phenomenon. I, I did an earlier piece, um, uh, a couple earlier pieces about the harms of masks. Um, and. You know, there's this, in a lot of peer, you know, dozens of peer-reviewed studies have, have, have documented what's called mask-induced exhaustion syndrome, that when you wear masks for a while, that um, it causes, uh, it's harder to concentrate, you're getting less oxygen um, in your body, that you're, um, that it causes fatigue, um, and, and lots of other problems. And I did that piece 
and and then Facebook sla slapped a partly false on it and really limited <laughs> distribution because and we appealed to them and they just cited you know and it was it was revealing how you know how arbitrary and and politicized fact you know supposed fact checking has become the, you know they said no yours um, they put partly false because I cited a study that was published in a peer-reviewed journal where these German researchers had just said, you know, no one's really studied the effects of masking, you know, mass masking of kids. So they, they just asked parents to report what their kids had experienced. And more than, I think, 20,000 parents responded. And a lot of them said, you know, yeah, it's caused, you know, they, they can't concentrate. They, they're, you know, lots of bad side effects. Well, and uh, and of course you know there's all the side effects you can't see someone's face for kids especially that's for social development for young people you know for people with learning disabilities for young kids who are trying to figure out how to get along with other people you know so um, I did this article that you know showing all the and citing this German study that uh, documenting the, the bad effects of masks and. And Facebook just—they had already this this group, uh, um, uh, this fact-checking group had already decided that this German study was wrong because, or you know, uh, needed to be censored because it didn't prove masks were harmful because it was based on the parents' <laughs> self-report. Well, but, you know, they said it very clearly. We're just we're just gathering data. I said it very clearly. I said obviously this wasn't a random sample. You know, it wasn't a, a controlled experiment, but it was just some data um, based on you know twenty thousand parents. Um, and uh, so, because I had cited that paper, therefore my article was partly false. And that paper itself, by the way, you know, this campaign by the left against anything that that they disagree with. You know, that was posted one of, at ResearchGate, I think it was, one of the big website scientists used for sharing their work. It was taken down there because of complaints about, you know, that, it, it, you know, you can't dare question masks. So I, and then I did a follow-up piece about, you know, the harm citing more of the research. And, and, you know, and what this fact-checking group, you know, they said, I didn't provide support for this. I didn't do that. The, um, you know, I, I cited, you know, studies in, in, in Sweden where they looked at the entire population of school children in the country. And they, they had a great natural experiment there where during the, the, the uh, uh, spring of 2020, they did briefly lock down uh, or, or, or had students in middle schools or, or was high school students who, who studied from home and middle schools stayed open. And so they were able to look at the families, and they had the, the health records of the entire population. So they could look at this at the students who stayed home versus the students who went to school, and they looked at the families of those kids. And they, there's just essentially no difference between the rate of infection between the kids who went home or not. And in Sweden, you know, they didn't, you know, they had no social distancing in schools. They had no masks. They had no plexiglass dividers. Nothing. They just continued normally. And you know. And during that period, not a single child died, and there was no greater, you know, risk to, to parents or teachers than to the rest of the population. So, I mean, that's that result right there should have told everyone we don't want to close schools, we don't want to inflict masks and social distancing on kids, but it just got ignored. Yeah, that's uh, one of the most consistent problems I think is that any it, it's uh, it's what you mentioned with with Fauci and Burks as well that they just don't even either don't consider the negative impacts of their policies or ignore them because it's inconvenient. Um, you know, you, you also wrote an article back in November of last year about uh, vaccine mandates for kids. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, why do you think this is a bad idea? And, and why do you think there are so many kind of people obsessed, obsessed with getting every single young child vaccinated for COVID? I mean, it's partly this, you know, this thing I told you about, what, you know, that once you give power to bureaucrats, and, you know, and central planners, they just become, their whole focus becomes not on whether the policy makes any sense, but getting people to obey. You know, they cannot be challenged. It just brings out, you know, I mean, it, it selects for tyrants and it encourages that behavior. Um, so, I mean, that's the overall explanation. And then you just have, I mean, once the media and, you know, and your public health leaders have been terrifying everyone about this and the media would run all these stories about, you know, the 
very isolated cases of kids who had serious cases. And, th and then they would run these stories, you know, about, oh, we have all this surge in hospitalizations of kids with COVID. And the reality was that, you know, there's a couple studies showed, you know, close to half of those kids were not really there for COVID. They were there for something else and just happened to test positive. And of course, that's been a problem throughout the pandemic, that there's been a huge incentive for people to count COVID hospitalizations and COVID deaths as due primarily to COVID when often COVID was not really at all the primary um, uh, a cause for the hospitalization or death. So, so you had everybody terrified about the kids are getting this and we should have had, you know, uh, I mean, ordinarily when there's a, a medical treatment or a drug that's introduced, we carefully scrutinize, the, you know, the side effects and we really weigh, you know, how much good will this do and how much damage will it do? Now, we knew with children, the benefits of the vaccine were practically nil. You know, children were more at risk from the flu than they were from COVID. And so you can't justify giving students this, you know, this thing that will, now the side effects are rare, but they're real. And, and we don't, and we don't know. I mean, the worst thing is we had no way of knowing what the long-term effects of this was. And yet we just waved that away and did it basically just to reassure neurotic parents and, and kind of a tyrannical public health people that, you know, that something was being done. So, I mean, I think it was really unethical to give children this because they, you know, they didn't benefit from it. And yet they were, we were putting them at risk. And we were also using vaccines that, you know, that could have been used far, put to far better use in, you know, in countries where, uh, in other countries, you know, where older people needed them. So in that sense, it was just a terrible policy, just driven by hysteria. The, uh, and it's still, you still see people who want to vaccinate their kids. I, I, I mean, I would, not, I would not want to do with my children um, because, you know, the fact is also that, you know, the vast majority of children have already had COVID. So they already mm -hmm. have some natural immunity. So the point of adding this vaccine and adding the potential risk of, uh, you know, from side effects that we, some of which we know about, like myocarditis, and some of which may, you know, only turn up in the future. Yeah. Uh, it, it kind of relates to one other question I uh, had for you that, you know, I think it's gotten to a point where it, it feels like experts and politicians kind of have to admit that they were wrong and not just end the policies, because if they, if they say, well, we'll end it, we'll end it now, there will always be an excuse for them to kind of bring these things back um, as the situation changes. I mean, already we're kind of seeing a little, you know, spring bump here in cases and they're calling for the return of mask mandates in a lot of cities and New York City is kind of threatening to bring back the vaccine passports and stuff like that. So, you know, do you agree with that? Is that something that you think we need to say, they need to say we were wrong about this and not just we'll, we'll end the policy? Oh, we definitely need to. I mean, I, you know, my latest piece in City Journal is called Won't Get Fooled Again. And it's a piece looking at um, how do we undo this lie, basically. You know, Mark Twain had a great line that how easy it is to make people believe a lie and how hard it is to undo that work. You know, once people fall for something, they really don't want to admit it and uh, uh, that it was wrong. And, and I, I talk about it. I really think what we've been, you know, put through, you, you put the American people through is a kind of a two-year hazing ritual, like a two-year version mm -hmm. of Fraternity Hell Week. And there's really interesting research that I cite in the City Journal article um, from the, some classic social psychological research that when you subject people to a painful hazing ritual, they tend to just value, you know, force themselves to believe that, that the reward was worthwhile even when it's completely worthless. Um, there's great experiments on that. that it's called effort justification. Um, mm. And it's to avoid the cognitive dissonance of thinking, God, I wasted all that effort on something that's worthless. So there's some great experiments about that. And that's what we're seeing is, I mean, if you've, you know, stayed home from school, from school and work and in church, if you've really forced these really cruel deprivations on your children, um, it's very hard to tell yourself that that was all a waste. And I think one way is to, to, to try and overcome that is tell people it wasn't your fault. You know, it, it was reasonable of you to assume that 
the Centers for Disease Control would know how to control disease. <laughs> it was reasonable to think that public health people, um, experts would actually, you know, advise policies that help the public health. They, those were reasonable assumptions the public made. They were just wrong. Right. And it's not their fault. And so um, we do need to show them, you know, in this piece, I think there's there's numbers that, that I really wish more people knew about that, um, you know, I calculate, you know, the great contrast, and you've done charts on this, was between California and Florida, because they're both big states, somewhat similar, you know, demographics, although Florida's older. Um, and, and they've got a lot of similarities in climate and, and things. So um, the... Um, and so, you know, Florida was held out as this, oh, but they're not locking down them. They're not ma uh, mandating masks. Well, California was probably the strictest in the country, I guess, right? Wouldn't you say? Just um, about, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but in fact, what has happened, if you look at the cumulative um, effects there during the pandemic, um, they both were relatively in the bottom 20 states in age-adjusted uh, COVID mortality. But in excess mortality, um, Florida is slightly lower than it's slightly fewer excess deaths per capita than California did. And they had notably fewer excess deaths among young people, among young adults throughout the pandemic. So, you know, what I calculated was that if California had the same rate of excess deaths as Florida, 5,000 fewer people in California would have died. Uh, mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And if California's unemployment rate equaled Florida's last year, 500,000 Californians, 500,000 fewer Californians would have been out of work. So, and those are actually, those numbers are actually a little bit on the low side. I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, how you can look at that and say lockdowns worked, you know, mass mandates worked. I don't know how people can do that. Um, yeah. You know, as Scott Alice has always said, you know, you can, present other, you know, these the sort of selective, you know, data cherry picking. You can point to, you know, some examples here and there. But when you propose a radical, untested, you know, medical treatment or drug with terrible side effects, the burden of proof is on you to show that it works, that, you know, that the, that the, that the benefits outweigh the the costs, the harms, and they have just not come where, nowhere near that. They haven't proven that there are any benefits from these policies. And we know that there are vast harms in children's learning. We know that people miss cancer screenings. We know that there have been, been a huge upsurge in, in, in fatal drug overdoses. We know there have been all these other um, problems, these psychological problems, social problems, people, you know, businesses, um, bankrupted jobs lost. We know all these bad effects from it. And we know that these things are not only bad financially, economically, but they're really bad for people's health too. So, and I, you know, there are these calculations that were made early in the pandemic, these estimates that the school closures and the business lockdowns would ultimately cost more years of life than the coronavirus because of all the indirect effects on people's health of, you know, they're, you know, they do worse in school. And, and so they, they make less money. They're poor. They die younger. Um, so there are all these terrible effects from it. And yet people still seem to think it worked. That's, it's very scary. I mean, I, I guess what I, you know, in, in the City Journal piece, won't get fooled again, I, I, I muse about, well, could a COVID commission, you know, do something like the 9-11 commission? And, and in theory, that would be great. Somebody, you know, just reviews the evidence, looks at things like your chart showing them, you know, the mass mandate states versus the non-mass mandate states and that there's no difference in the course of COVID in them. Um, so it would be nice to think that a commission could do that. But, you know, given, you know, the way the public health establishment and, and certainly with the Biden administration and there, I don't think it's, you know, there probably would not be a, an honest inquiry. And, and even if it were done, if you could find the right person to lead it, it, you know, it might well be dismissed by the news media as, oh, it's just a partisan thing, whatever. So it's a tough problem how you undo this damage. I, I think, you know, I, I think one thing could be if Ron DeSantis runs for president and he runs on that record and forces people to look at, the, you know, the charts you've done and, you know, and forces people to compare Florida with California or, or Sweden and Finland and Norway with the rest of Europe. 
um, I mean, you have to, people have to see that. And they're just, the mainstream media just, and, you know, has just been ignoring it. They, you know, they, they would cover Florida or Sweden when they had a surge and go, oh my God, you see, it's not working. And then the rest of the time when they were doing better than everyone else, they just ignore it. Yeah. And, and that's kind of uh, my last question I wanted to ask you about was media coverage. Um, and, you know, why has it been so slanted and, and so in favor of these policies? And, you know, I, I, as my understanding of journalism was that you're supposed to be questioning authority. Um, and it seems like in the last couple of years, at least with public health authorities and most politicians other than Ron DeSantis, uh, they've been very kind of, uh, you know, they, they've been very off, uh, let them get away with whatever they want. You know, they, they haven't been very critical or, or any about policies or decision-making. Um, you know, is it is it just a political motivation? You know, why why has it been like this for two years? Well, there's two things. One is that uh, you know journalism, you know journalists do question authority when it's you know Donald Trump. Um, so, <laughs> but, and that's a journalists have become. Um, it's because you know these institutions that that once. I mean, journalists in mainstream media has, and in academia have always leaned left, but it's it's there's really been there's been this tipping point reach where they, you know, and, and it's been demonstrated, and you know that once an institution gets beyond a certain point, it's just, you know, it really just becomes hopelessly gone, and because there's so many people there, they just hire people like themselves, and and, and they all start fooling each other into thinking because all they hear is is each other, and they think that that their views are not only, you know, the mainstream, they think their views are not only um, the, the consensus, but they also think that they're true, you know, that, you know, because everyone I know believes this. So you've had that in journalism where they've, and they've basically become a lot of journalism now is basically just how do we advance the progressive agenda that we report stuff that helps us and we ignore stuff that doesn't. So that's part of the problem. Um, the other part of the problem is simply that the journalists, although they like to challenge authority when it suits their purposes, they also just have this huge inherent bias in the mass media. It doesn't exist so much in social media, but there's this huge negativity bias. I mean, that's what I wrote this book about, the, the power of bad, about the negativity bias and how it uh, rules us. And I wrote it with Roy Baumeister, a really prominent social psychologist, who, who basically identified this effect. And they just found, I mean, the simplest way to say it is bad is stronger than good. For good evolutionary reasons, our brain is just wired to respond more strongly to negative influences than to bad. So, you know, you walk into a room, you immediately focus on the hostile faces. You, um, uh, you're at a party and, and people are nice to you, but you go home and you just remember the one bad thing that somebody said. So, and, and we did that because it's a survival mechanism. You've got to pay attention to threats more than nice things. But it's this flaw in our thinking or it's a feature of our thinking that gets exploited by the media because the easiest way for a mass medium to attract attention to get clicks and views and uh, readers eyeballs is with something scary something that's negative so now social media is is a bit different because the stuff people share with their friends you don't really send your friends grisly pictures of school shootings or um, you tend to share more positive things, and that's why I'm, you know, I'm I'm optimistic in a lot of ways about social media because it's enabling people to avoid the the fear mongering that is basically, you know, requisite for mass media because it's just um, all of us have the same fears. You know, we don't want to die, we don't want to be hurt, so you can always get attention by by warning people of something that's going to hurt them. Whereas the the positive things you know that that we like you know science culture books movies whatever those are very you know they're varied so it you know we have different tastes with our history buffs their philosophy buffs there so it's harder to reach a mass audience with positive stuff so the you know the mass media will always go negative and and that's what you know happened in the last couple of years that was just on steroids i mean it was just um, you know, there was a study that in the first um, a year of the camp, the first nine months of the pandemic, 93% of the stories in the U.S. were negative. And actually, it was it was you know it wasn't as bad in Europe. 
it was about half and half. But it didn't matter whether cases were going up, whether they were going down, when there was progress reported toward a vaccine, no, no, it'll never work, it'll never work. So there was just this huge negativity bias there in the media. And, um, and, and that's just, I mean, that's how the industry operates. And I think the reason probably the U.S. was worse was maybe partly the politicization with Trump and also just we just have a very competitive media marketplace. And so everybody knows the way to get, you know, attention is to scare people. Hmm. Really uh, <laughs> depressing to hear that, but uh, hopefully... <laughs> You know, hopefully we'll, uh, you know, as we get, my hope is that as we get further away from March 2020, there'll be some more, you know, kind of intellectual honesty going on and, and more discussion of the harms of these policies and, and failures of them. But uh, I guess we'll just have to see. Well, uh, I hope so, you know, and I, I just want to say to you know, that in yeah. the power of bad, we talk about the crisis crisis and, and, and things to do to, to overcome it. And, you know, we're not naive enough to think that we're going to change the, the national media and the incentives that drive them. But we do, you know, have hope that people can start curating their own news and, and not falling for that. And I think podcasts like yours are, you know, are a great alternative that people can actually, you know, turn to other people for information, to other sources. You know, they can, you know, what we call go on a low bad diet uh, um, that <laughs> and curate your news so that you do it. And podcasts like yours are just a great source for people who want, you know, want the facts instead of scares. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that is a, a really encouraging development. People have a lot more sources now to get information in, in City Journal and places like that and in, in your book. And um, so, yeah, thank you so much, John, for coming on the show. Really appreciate all your input. Uh, everybody, you can go follow John on Twitter. It's John Tierney NYC. Obviously, there's just tons of great work at City Journal. And, and the book is The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. So thanks again, John, for coming on. Thank you, Ian. And thanks for all the great work you're doing. Thank you.